0: hello greetings thanks for your interest in spiritual matters my name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ we're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles it is written in the gospel of John beginning in the 13th chapter and in verse 31 when Judas Iscariot had gone out Jesus said now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him if God is glorified in him God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also." Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Thus begins Jesus' final discourse with his 11 disciples. Now this discourse takes up a major portion of the final quote-unquote half of John's gospel, in which John details a final day of Jesus' life along with his resurrection. This is from John 13 through 21. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, he spends the first 18 verses in a prologue and then he spends from John 121 through 12:50 uh, detailing Jesus' ministry, especially as it happened in Judea. John has very deliberately framed his gospel in this way. in fact, beginning in verse 36 of chapter uh, 12 through 43, he kind of has a, a coda for Jesus' ministry. Uh, he said, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word of the prophet spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and, see with, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal him.'" Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the, even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's John's description of the end. And then Jesus himself says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come to the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as a father... Has told me so that's Jesus final message to the people really establishing who he is and what he's done So the rest of the gospel from John 13 1 through 21 25 is all about Jesus final evening his betrayal his trial his death and the Appearances that he had in the resurrection But you notice that chapter 13 through 21 now the end part of 13 all of 14 15 16 and 17 and therefore in the evening, 18, 19, 20, 21, for everything else. These are all this final discourse that Jesus has with his disciples. In John 18, his betrayal and trial is chronicled. His death and burial are chronicled in John 19. His resurrection periods are in John 20 and 21. And John is framing the whole event, as we're going to see in a moment, in the first 30 verses of John 13. And so really, Jesus' final discourse is extraordinary. It's an otherwise unheard of, unbroken series of instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples. As we explore this, chapter divisions become completely irrelevant. John 13-31-1725 through 31 through is one continued conversation between Jesus and the eleven, along with a prayer. And so we will ignore them, where necessary. There's really no parallel to this in any of the Gospels. This entire discourse takes place within four verses in Matthew, Matthew six, three through 34, in the five verses of Matthew, Mark 14:26 to 31, and in Luke 22:31 through 39. Matthew and Mark's greatest concern is is Peter's uh, willingness to to follow Jesus, but then the, the the fact that he's going to deny him three times before the rooster crows, as we saw in our passage. In um, Luke, in Luke's passage, there's some this discussion of final concerns but not nearly to the extent that we see here in john and so john is emphasizing the power and value of what jesus is saying he is not going to be with them much longer on earth and so he provides these final exhortations which ring in their ears again we're not denying uh, thinking that somehow john's made all this up uh, just because matthew mark and luke don't record it in such detail as me didn't happen it's left for john to record it in detail and John is doing this for a reason. In 1 Kings chapter two, the first nine verses, uh, the king's author dwells on David's final instructions of Solomon, which kind of sounds more like a Godfather level hit thing, where certain people need to be remembered for what they've done and they all end up getting iced in the end. And so, that's not necessarily what Jesus is doing here, of course, but what Jesus is doing, these final words are very powerful the last message he want to leave with the 11 and so that's what we're beginning to read here uh in john 13 uh, 31 through 14, 14 now before it happens though we have john 13 1 through 30 and john in the first three verses really builds up the suspense of what's going on now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, and it continues on about him rising from supper. So this is the grand climax. Judas is going to betray him. He's fulfilling his mission. The end is coming. John is just laying it on thick to make it blindingly obvious to us the reader what's going on he's shining every light in our eyes to say this is significant this is important this is powerful and therefore everything that we're going to see him record of what jesus is saying is in view of what is about to happen in his death resurrection and ascension all that stuff that's going to continue now in verses 4 through 20 jesus will wash his disciples feet Including Judas's feet, and he leaves them a very compelling example that they would serve one another. Since he, who they call their master and lord, has washed their feet, they should wash one another's feet. Then Jesus turns in verses twenty through thirty to speak about the one who was going to betray him, and Judas is identified as such, and he goes away to do so. Uh, the disciples are confused, thinking that he was going to go make a donation or, or do something for the poor or something. They're not aware of what he's doing, but Judas knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing, and now Judas has left the scene and so we're supposed to imagine everything that comes forward judas is out betraying jesus we had a split screen so to speak we see judas going to the high priest going to get the 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 military guard and going to meet in the garden while jesus is having this conversation with his disciples in the upper room and heading toward the garden uh, where we reach the, the the climactic point of conflict there in john 18 So therefore, everything Jesus is saying is to prepare the disciples for what is about to take place as best that he can with their current level of understanding. Now, as we get into the text, there's a few contextual reminders that we need to keep front and center as we look at this text. Jesus has yet to die, let alone be raised. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what will happen immediately afterward, as well as what would be after his resurrection. Far too often, John 13:31 through seventy twenty-six has material in it that's completely decontextualized and made only to refer to events after Jesus' resurrection. Now, we may not think it's that long between his death and resurrection, from Friday afternoon to early Sunday morning, but there's a lot that could have taken place in that time. And keep in mind that Jesus no longer was among his disciples after uh, the events in the Garden. And the disciples are completely unprepared for what's about to happen. Because nothing in the prophets would have automatically prepared them for the Messiah to die and rise first, and then a later resurrection of everybody. Uh, so all these things Jesus said, they've heard it. It's not that they don't, uh, they doubt it, they just don't see how it all works together. Now, like John 16, uh, verses 16 through 24, when, he, when Jesus will talk about the fact that um, they would have sadness for a minute and then great joy, while the world would have great joy and then sadness. Uh, that's clearly referring to his death and then resurrection. It's not referring to events after that. Um, and even things like the coming of the Comforter, uh, which is understood to happen after the Ascension, but promised in John 14 and 16, is anticipated in John's Gospel in John 20, 20 23, when Jesus in the resurrection breathes on them and says for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, so all things in John 13 through 17 here must be understood in terms of preparing the disciples for Jesus' death. And his departure and death, and not only secondarily after the resurrection, his ascension. The other thing to keep in mind is that Jesus is speaking to the eleven. Another way that this gets contextualized is to make various parts of Jesus' exhortations automatically refer to everybody who's ever lived in Jesus. Now, it's possible that other disciples were around, but uh, the upper room could not have been terribly large, and 13 people uh, is already a crowd. But throughout, the idea is that Jesus is talking with the eleven, and it must be understood in that light. There are certain promises, like in John 14, 26, that could only refer to the apostles anyway. The Comforter cannot bring to our mind what Jesus had taught us while he was in the flesh, because we weren't there with him as the disciples were with him. But as we're going to see, much of what Jesus has to say to the eleven will be true to all disciples of Jesus. And it's going to be our work and application to sort out what we are to gain from what Jesus said to the eleven and direct application by or what we understand uh, took place in the apostles. So having said all that, Judas has left the building. So now he is turning to his eleven. And the first thing and the thing of great priority that he mentions is that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. He's explaining what's going to happen. And God will be glorified in him. Glorification is a major premise in John's Gospel. Uh, in John 12, 16, 23, 25, we'll see it again in John 14, 13, 15, 8, 17, 4, and 10. In Hebrew, glory is kavod, it means weight, it's something that can weigh down. So, it's something that can be born. And Jesus will glorify the Father and be glorified as the Son of Man in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Because he's going to be made ruler of heaven and earth, and God will be honored for what he has done in Jesus. So that, that's what he's talking about. That's how the glorification happens. Uh, death and resurrection. Um, so because that's what's going to happen, he calls the disciples his little children, and he reaffirmed to them what he had taught to the, the Israelites in John 7, and 33, and 8, 21-24. In a little while they would seek him, but he would be gone, and they could not go where he was going. And so he has important instruction. Now, this is what Peter's going to get hung up on. And it's going to lead to a lot of the rest of the discourse that we're going to talk about in John 13, 36, through 14, 14. Now, little children is language that we see a lot in John. It's seen also in 1 John 2, uh, 1, 12, 13, 18, chapter 2, 28, chapter 3, 7, 18, chapter 4, 4, and chapter 5, 21. It's a sign of affection and care. This is the place that we do see it in the Gospel of John. The only one, though. And so this is how Jesus is framing this discussion. This great thing is going to happen to me. Now, listen up because I'm going to be gone and I'm not going to be with you anymore a new commandment I give you love one another just as I had loved you that's the command he gives in John 13:34 and that all would know he they are his disciples by their love for one another in verse 35 now, this is, we have to understand this in the light of, 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 of ancient Israel and to understand what the, the disciples hear when they hear this. A new commandment I give to you. That's just shocking. New command. In Deuteronomy 4, and verse 2, we now add to or take away from this law that, that Mo, Yahweh had given to Moses. There's no room for new commands. And Israel had already been commanded in Leviticus 19.18 to love their neighbor as themselves. But John in 1 John 2, 7 and 8, and 2 John 1, 5 will return to the idea of the new commandment and makes it clear that, yes, the command to love is old, but the new element of it is the model for the love, that we are to love one another as Jesus had loved us. That's the new part of it. In Luke 10, we see the problem with the old command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the Lord asks, well, who is my brother? are ways to try to get around uh, what the, 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 answer should be and to justify, uh, one's own tribalism. Uh, as this is the case throughout John 13, 31 through 14, 14, we're, we're invited to see a profound shift in Christ from a system based in a written code to the way of life based in the model of Jesus, the son of God, the word made flesh, because we don't look to what, what is love by looking at a, a series of rules anymore. We instead see it in, 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 in jesus because god is love in first john 4 8 and jesus is god in the flesh according to john 1 1 and verse 14. and again first john 4 chapter 21 a major passage of 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 john's uh, is all about love and it's rooted in this idea of loving one another um and that jesus is a model of this so this is a powerful exhortation here now peter's hung up where are you going we assume he heard all the stuff about love, but he asks, "Where are you going?" And Jesus says, "Look, well, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward." Classic uh, double entendre that John uses all the time in the Gospel, uh, where people are having two different conversations. Peter's thinking some destination, uh, and Jesus is looking forward to uh, the way, a way of life and, and the end of life. Uh, Going here represents the way of suffering and death and this way Jesus is forecasting the type of death Peter would eventually endure in martyrdom. It was not for him now. It would come to him later Peter and here Peter is probably representing all the others. is thinking Jesus is going somewhere else and so This is why Peter will persist. Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you and in John it's just Peter in the other Gospels all the others say the same. So again, J- Peter here is definitely representative in this mentality. They've got a lot of courage because they're all together. It's going to be a very different story, as we know, in a few hours. Uh, we can imagine Jesus almost half snickering in his ass. Would, would you? Will you lay down your life for me? We, we can almost hear that, uh, indicating that before the rooster crow, he would deny Jesus three times. Um, and this is what we see in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22 as well. It's fulfilled when we document in John 18, 15 through 18 and 25 through 27. Uh, in John's Gospel, it's interesting, Peter does follow Jesus more than anybody else. Everybody else is scattered. Uh, Peter and another disciple, uh, probably John himself, end up in the courtyard of the high priest, watching all this happen. It's there where these denials take place. So yes, J- Peter is willing to go a little further than everybody else, but he doesn't measure up at that moment. Uh, Peter is the most brash and forward, and he, he gets the tongue lashing for that in, in, in the gospel and in preaching ever since. But the eleven would all scatter in this moment of crisis, so being too hard on Peter is, is is not wise. Again, we have a chapter division, but it's the same message. Right after he says this, we kind of see this in verse 36 through 38. This is kind of this side to Peter's question. So the idea is you love one another. The love commandment is to love one another as I have loved you, this new commandment he's given. So their hearts are not to be troubled. They are to believe in God and believe in him. What does he have to do? He has to go prepare a place for them because there's many rooms in the house of the Father. And he wants to go there to prepare us so he can welcome them to himself, that they can be where he is and they know the way uh, to get there. That's the first four verses. And this is the way Jesus explains why he's got to be going through the pain and suffering and how it could be God's purpose. This is how God is reconciling people to himself to become part of his household, as Paul will go and discuss in great length in Ephesians chapter 2. We need to first listen to the resonance of the words my father's house. We'll get to the other word. That's the more controversial word. But first, my father's house. In John's gospel, in John 2 and verse 16, when Jesus goes into the temple and brings the whip of cords to kick out all of the the money changers, he talks about it as my father's house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In John 2, 17, uh, the disciples remember him that he, zeal for your thy house will consume me. Uh, 69, 9, uh, Psalm 69, 9, excuse me, is, is that reference and it's regarding the temple and what Jesus is doing in the temple. So what's interesting is that even by Jesus saying this, in my Father's house are many rooms, the disciples are being conditioned to understand that Jesus' Father's house has been the temple, and by temple, by extension, it's God's dwelling in heaven, since the temple is a point of intersection between heaven and earth. And so this is the shift in understanding, because here, before they been conditioned to see my Father's house at the temple, but here, they don't look at it as that way. The, con- the Disciples are being conditioned to understand now that the house of God is no longer going to be a building in Jerusalem, but it's going to be centered in the people of God in Christ. This was what was anticipated in John 4, when Jesus talks about those who truly worship the Father, do so in spirit and truth, and making it less about geography, about Gerizim or Jerusalem, and more about the heart and the soul. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, 6, 19 to 20, Ephesians 2, and in 1 Peter 2, we've got these messages that believers in Christ are now a temple of God uh, in which the Holy Spirit dwells in them individually and collectively. And that gets us to that other word, that in the English Standard is translated rooms, but in the King James Version was so memorably translated mansions. And there's so much confusion out there about what John 14, one is talking about because of a distorted understanding of what Jesus is getting at when it comes to what his father's house is. Uh, KGV reads mansion, and in 1611 mansion is from the Latin word Monterey to remain. Therefore it's a temporary dwelling place, a place where you remain. Uh, people developed the idea of a mansion, the Father's house, as this grand house, which now leads to the modern use of the word mansion, which is big, nice, fancy houses. And now that's being read back into John 14, too. So people went uh, hog wild with their imagination about what Jesus is referring to in terms of mansions, then started talking about earthly big houses as mansions, and now everybody thinks they're going to get this huge house in heaven. But the word in Greek is mone, and it's true to the 17th century meaning of mansion. It's a temporary dwelling place. It's an abode. It's a room. It makes sense within the metaphor. As Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. The rooms are within the house of the father. Uh, It's a metaphor within a metaphor, if it's otherwise. If it's big houses in a house. And that would be very weird. But rooms in a house, places to dwell in a house, is intuitive. That's what you'd be expecting. Now, in the New Testament, Monet is only used in two places. Here in verse 2, and also in verse 23, in which Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. To make our home there is Monet, to make our abode with him and that's a part of the understanding that we need to have that's going to be the key to unlock this for us it's not about a spatial location it's about a relationship so many have wanted to make this passage about obtaining heaven forever and some kind of disembodied bliss but that's not at all what jesus is getting at here what is necessary after all to prepare us a place in the house of the Father? According to Ephesians 2 and many other passages, we need our sins forgiven and the ability to stand before God that's secured through Jesus' death. The goal is to be where Jesus is, and this is secured in the salvation which is now but not yet. In a sense, it's pervasive throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 2:6, we've been made to rise and sit in the heavenly places presently, but we wait to bear the image of the heavenly and always be with the Lord in the full sense. In First Corinthians 15:49 and First Thessalonians 4, and verse 17. And so what Jesus is doing is, in a compelling metaphor, setting forth exactly what his dying is about. It's reconciliation of God and man, to allow people to obtain standing and presence in the household of God. And think about it. What would Jesus have to do after his resurrection to secure us a place in heaven? What was done, as the rest of the New Testament abundantly attests to, is that what secured our place in the standing before God is his death and the resurrection in which he is glorified and we have our standing in the house of god because of it it's about relationship it's not about a place and the temporary nature of it is probably an indication of something greater to come i.e the day of resurrection jesus ends this by saying you know the way i will bring you to where i am you know how to get there and now thomas is confused and startled and not for not without reason. Where I am going, you cannot come, he had just said. But now I said, you know the way to where I'm going. So John, Tom's like, we don't know where you're going. How can we know how to get there? Not an unreasonable question. And Jesus responds with a very famous verse. I am the way, the truth, and the fa- life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you would know me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. A justly famous series of metaphors. First of all, we do want to note that it's also about the relational thing. What is the way? Jesus is the way. What does Jesus lead us to? God. It's about relationship, not necessarily about a location. The location is rooted in relationship, so to speak. But what's very compelling about this is that way, truth, and life are all seen in Israel in terms of Torah or law. The Torah is the path forward. It gives direction and instruction, right? Uh, the truth is in the law. The, the Life is in the law. And Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, that God gave them manna to test and let them know that man does not live by bread alone by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so all that had been in Torah, but now Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus now is the embodiment of God's Word. So by being the embodiment of that, he, the embodiment of the truth, the embodiment of the way, and the life was in him, the life was the light of men, in John 1 and verse 4. I am the bread of life, in John 6, 26-59, which is, of course, going back to that bread in Deuteronomy 8, in verse 3, the Word of God. As the embodiment of the Word of God... No one can reach God except through Jesus. That is, makes complete sense. And beyond this, Jesus is the way God has manifested himself to the world. We see the essential nature of the Father and the Son. So that we get the idea of that he is the icon of the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15, that he is the exact imprint of the character of God in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. And so because of this, Philip says, okay, well, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus is very incredulous in his answer, and that's for good reason. Uh, you can't see the Father. Uh, Moses could only see the back of the glory of God, in Exodus 33, 18 through 23. And John has already said straight up in John 1, no man has ever seen God at any time. So uh, Philip is-, is making this very shocking pronouncement. Uh, he thinks it makes sense because Jesus says, You will see me, and you'll see the Father. Well, let me see the Father. And do you, not, do you not get it? Jesus then says, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father does philip believe that the father is in him and he's in the father and if not at least believe the works which the father has done in jesus and in fact now a greater works will those who believe in him will do than he does because he goes to the father and then he says whatever you ask in in my name i will do and the father will be glorified in the son in this way if you ask me anything i will do it and that rounds out our section um jesus is making clear you're not going to literally concretely or physically see the father instead you have seen the embodiment of the essential nature and character of god in jesus they're to believe that the father is in jesus and jesus is in the father we already having these this association we've seen earlier in the gospel of john but it's going to be further explained fully in john 17 23 23 uh we call paracritic relational unity the perichoresis is a mutual interpenetration without loss of distinctiveness and so paracritic relational unity is the fact that God is one, even though he's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, because they mutually interpenetrate each other. The Father's in the Son, who is in the Spirit, who is in the Son, who is in the Father. But yet they're all distinct. They are relationally one. The disciples should believe nothing else because of the works that they have seen Jesus has done that has been done through the Father. And they're plain to them to see this. And the disciples would do even greater works, which we can see in the book of Acts and afterward, in which many thousands would come to faith in God and Jesus, when in Jesus' own day, the number was much, much smaller than that. And whatever they would ask for in Jesus' name, Jesus would give them because the Father is glorified in the Son. Now, a lot of people take this to abusive ends, that whatever you ask, you'll get. So ask for a million dollars, ask for this, ask for that. In James 4, 1-5, James condemns worldly-thinking Christians, that they ask and do not receive because they ask wrongly to spend it on their passions. It's not what God is about here. What we're to ask for is what is in line with our relationship with God in Christ to further glorify God. And when we ask those things, God will absolutely give them so that his purposes may be fulfilled. Now, Jesus' discourse will continue from here and it will end in 16 with a specific discussion and begin a prayer. Uh, Lord willing, we will continue to discuss more uh, about what Jesus says in this discourse at another time. But I hope that we can see here how he's begun with his primary message he wants the disciple to remember. Love one another as he has loved them. He has gone to prepare a place for them in the house of God and for us as well. And the way to obtain it is to follow his example because he is the way, the truth, and the life, the embodiment of God's character. So what are we supposed to take from this? So much of our focus when we look at these passages are on John fourteen one through four, and we can understand why. But John thirteen thirty one through thirty five is really uh, first and foremost. And if if they were going to ask me when they should put chapter divisions, I would have put it thirteen thirty five, not four thirteen thirty one should be not fourteen one, uh, because when Judas has gone out, this is when the discourse begins. He's explaining what's going on. And he says, okay, we are to love one another as Jesus' love does. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. He draws us all together. All this is going to happen to me. I'm going to be glorified. All these things are happening. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is the embodiment of God's character, we have been told in these passages. And God is love. Therefore, Jesus must be the embodiment of love. And we can see that when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 John 4, and other passages. There's so many times that we get all sorts of arguments about religious matters, but despite it all, we do really know what love looks like. A self-sacrificial love of a Savior, a love that absorbs pain and invective, suffering loss, doing good, and seeking the best and good for others no matter what. And we know this because we see it in Jesus. And no matter how we try to deny it, suppress it, rationalize, or justify ourselves away, that love stares at us in the face on the cross. This is what Paul underscores as well in Romans 5, 6-11, that while we were yet enemies, God reconciled us to him in Jesus. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that anchors how we look at one another and those in the world. Because that love that God has shown us in Christ is never deserved. And we cannot love on some kind of metric of worthiness. We'll never be worthy. We don't deserve it. And if we don't deserve it, then when we look at other people, we can't try to find reasons to say they're not worthy of love because those same reasons could be used against us by God and we would be condemned. And we cannot let John thirteen thirty five be dulled. The force must always be there. We will be known as Jesus' disciples by our love for one another because if we do not have love for one another, we are not Jesus' disciples it's not about the pretense it's not about what we tell ourselves not about the sign we put on church buildings it's not about doctrinal stances in the end it's about how we treat one another for if jesus is not embodied in our midst in how we treat one another it's not jesus body and we need to repent we need to make it so that we are that loving body because that is what energizes and enervates the body of Christ. And if we are the body of Christ, we will be love, and share that love among one another and love all that we come in contact with, even when and especially when they do not deserve it. These are the words Jesus wants to have continually ringing in our ears as he has left us. Love one another as I have loved you. All men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. As we said, John 14, 1 through 4 has become the linchpin in many arguments made in songs and in many forms of instruction about the hope of the Christian in heaven. The implicit message, sometimes made explicit, is it's a form of escapism that's focused completely on the destination. We need to make it all about getting to heaven. Heaven will be so much greater. It's all about making it to heaven. We need to escape to be with Jesus. Whatever truth may be in that is warped by distortion. Because that's not what Jesus is really trying to say and communicate here. And it leads to a distorted faith. Yes, Jesus speaks about heaven with some spatial terms. It talks about in terms of a place he goes to. But everything he said is oriented up to relationship. A room in the Father's house. What does that mean? It's a metaphor to talk about a restored relationship with God. That you dwell in the house of God. And it's a metaphor that will be used in 1423 to talk about the father and son making their abode together with a person who loves them by doing the commandments and keeping the word. Jesus is the way to relationship with God. The ultimate goal in biblical terms is to stand in the presence of God forever, as we see in John 14 and in Revelation 21 22. So what we have made too often about a destination, God has spoken of in terms of a relationship. And that relationship is something we can't have now, even though we do not have it in its fullness. And we need to keep it in those relational terms. We should want to be part of the Father's house now so that we can become more like him now to be able to fully enjoy the resurrection in his presence then when it may happen in Romans 8, 17 through 25 and in verse 29. Because when it comes to heaven, the only way to get to the destination is to have the relationship. The only value in that destination is the development of that relationship. Because if you go through your life in sin and distortion of everything God has wanted, alienated from God, or not developing yourself according to God's standards, heaven's going to be quite the shock. Being with God is going to be quite the shock. To have God for eternity is only the most amazing thing when we have cultivated that relationship so that the idea of having God forever is the most amazing thing. Is it presently our great joy and desire to have God for all eternity? Or are we still stuck on the things that God gives us and yearn really to have greater stuff from God then than we have now? Because that's not what it's about we must always privilege and prioritize the relationship with God over all things. If the relationship's in the right place, everything else is going to follow in our development and character uh, to that, so that we can enjoy and appreciate what will be. If the relationship's not in the right place, we're not going to make it to the destination that we want. That is why... The relationship is what's really in discussion here. It's about developing and maintaining that relationship so as to have its ultimate result in the final destination. John 14, 6-11, we often quote in work of apologetics, and it's used profitably that end. I mean, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And those are these in the text. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life, the only way to the Father. This is such an arrogant claim to the world. They may think we're judgmental, that we are condemning everybody else to hell. But here's the thing. It follows by necessity from what Jesus claims, he says, if he is true. If he is the embodiment of God's character, where else are you going to look to find God's character? Anything else is not going to live up to God's character as fully as the embodiment of God's character in Jesus. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, where else are you going to go to to find a better image of of the invisible God than the image God has made of himself? It does really require a black and white, clear cut binary distinction decision here. Either Jesus speaks truth and is the truth, and he's to be served as Lord, or he is deceived or a liar, whatever else was going on with him, and we should have nothing to do with him because he's deluded. But Jesus has been a compelling figure for 2,000 years now for good reason. His ways were not the ways of the world a higher way, a way which is worth following, not because it leads to worldly success or praise, but because it is the only way to find the Creator and what is truly life. When we get so stuck on the apologetics, we miss the point, the profound message. Jesus is the embodiment of God's character. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, Jesus must be the way to God and was sent to show us that way. And that's the strange time when the profound message is the contextual one and the one that we should not forget or minimize. Uh, We make it way too easy in our zeal to adhere to what God has made known in the scriptures to become too much like Israel and just become people of the book. Make it all about the book. It's understandable in Israel. They were given the law on tablets. They were given a law code. They gloried in it. Read Psalm 119. But in 2 Corinthians 3, one through eighteen, Paul speaks of it in terms of law and spirit, operating in terms of what Jesus says versus what the disciples have understood in Israel in John 14. Israel had been centered on the Torah and the temple. Now God was centering spiritual Israel in Jesus, who embodies both Torah and temple in himself. And so it is that we need to follow Jesus according to what he has made known in his word if we would reach the Father. Now a lot of times when that argument is made, we're tempted to abbreviate it. We follow the Bible, or we observe the Word. But that's a dangerous temptation, to lose the Christ in the words of the book. The life of the world is the life found in Christ. The ways of God we learn in Scripture are valid only because they are the way of Jesus. The truth of the Bible is only truth because Jesus is the truth. We must never allow the book to distract us from the Christ. Because it is the Christ who is the temple Mm -hmm. in whom God dwelt. The Christ is the law, the instruction. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, my words are. He says, I am. John does well in his gospel, showing that everything is now centered in Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. It's about the person of Jesus in the end. And that's what the gospel is really all about. And it's all these things we've talked about. About love, about what, what Jesus prepared for us about him, the way, the truth, and life, it shows that there's one thing that really matters developing relational unity with God the Father through God the Son, following the ways of Jesus of Nazareth established in Scripture through the Holy Spirit, loving one another and all mankind as Jesus loved us, and point to Him in all things. This is how Jesus began his final discourse with his eleven disciples. He was going away, his disciples could not go with him. He went to prepare a place for them in the house of the Father, and they would obtain it by following Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Sustained in him, given gifts in him, powerfully working in him. They must love one another as Jesus loved them, and all would know they were Jesus' disciples by the love they shared with each other. These are the words that must ring in our ears, because we are called upon to follow Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And if we would obtain God in the life that is in him, may we love one another as Jesus loved us and obtain the resurrection of life in him. Okay, so glad that you've joined us. If you've benefited by this, we encourage you to share it with friends, family, and others on social media. If you have questions about anything that we've talked about, if you'd like to talk about anything further, if you have a prayer request, like to learn more about us or meet with us, please find out more about us on our website at www.vennichurchofchrist.org. Uh, we're also on social media. If you'd like to reach me personally, uh, I can be contacted by my website at theverbalvitae.com. That's www.DeVerboVitae.com. Hi again. Thank you. Have a great day.